This is Film Slob. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, Slobs. I know we've been a bit delayed. We are trying, trying to get things out on schedule. Uh, I think we're giving up on Fridays. Sorry about it. We're going to release them when we got them. That's just the way it goes. We have a lot of things going on. I might be moving away to Oregon at some point later in the year, and we're still going to keep the show going. It's just hard. I got a lot going on. Forgive me. And we try to do the best we can. We don't want to give you something boring to listen to. Um, today we're talking about Almost Famous. I love Almost Famous. It's one. It's like a very personal movie to me. I wanted to bring a couple of guests on. That didn't end up happening. Um, I want to bring them back in the future to talk about this movie. I'm not quite sure that we squeezed all the juice out that we could have from this conversation. And I kind of wanted to leave it that way. I didn't want to get to every single aspect, but I did want to talk about this movie. And we wanted to release something this week. We had already watched it, done the research, whatever. Anyway. There's more to this conversation. It'll come later in the future. We're allowed to do that. Listen to the thing. It's fun. It's fun. It's a good movie. Um, thank you for listening. I'm recording this post-show. We already recorded it. I enjoyed the conversation. Um, Patrick and I hung out. We want to go see the Batman with the theater full of friends. Ran out of the theater for the first time. That was a really cool experience. If you haven't run out of theater before, I recommend it. It's fun. You can talk as much as you want. Bring out your cell phone anytime. Not that I use my cell phone when I'm watching movies, but, you know, we have a freedom to do that. Anyway, this is our talk about Almost Famous. It was a good time. I hope you enjoy it. Um, we got an episode with another podcast coming out. We were guests on another podcast for the very first time. That was a damn good time. It was really nice not to be in charge of the conversation or have to handle sound levels or anything like that. Um, we got other things going on. I mentioned it during the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, slobs. We'll see you next time. I'll see you next week. Enjoy the show. Before we get started, yes, um, I gotta say, your looks have really become a problem <laughs> for this podcast. You're supposed say. to be the loquacious host with uh, with the good looks, and I'm supposed to be no, you're not the, supposed the to the co-host with mystique. Yeah, <laughs> the pensive co-host with uh, mystique. <laughs> All right, so obviously today we're talking about almost famous. Um, I've been wanting to talk about this movie for a while. <laughs> it's a, it's kind of a weird thing to talk about actually, because I think this movie is like widely adored, but recently I have found it like, like not everybody likes it. Yeah. I didn't like it at first. Exactly. <laughs> like what the fuck? Like I told yeah. Roxy, Hey, there's people that don't like almost famous. And she's like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, I mean it makes a little bit more sense to me now. Like, uh, when we were talking to Roxy last yeah. time, we talked about movies as a social experience. Yeah. And, uh, I think the first time I watched this movie, I was just with somebody like I didn't really want to be hanging out with. And, yeah. um, I, the movies it's long. So yeah. I was just like, it was torture. Like I just wanted to like, is it long? Wanted, yeah. I think it was like, uh, 
two hours and 40 minutes. Really? Yeah. The, this but version, it, the one... I think maybe I watched the... Because there's a director's cut. That's yeah. like the only thing you can get on Blu-ray. Like the only thing ab- right. available on Blu-ray is the director's cut. And I think that's like two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. that's That was really the only version that I could find for this. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's long. It is but long. I, I mean, watched it recently and it was like, it was amazing. Probably because yeah. you were at, watched the shorter version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, we, I watched the two hour and 40. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Where'd you watch it? Did you just download uh, I it? I watched it at my house. Yeah. But did you download it? I got it on Amazon Prime. I rented it. Oh, nice. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find it. Good for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally paying for everything that yeah. we watch. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Okay. I think what's important about this movie contextually is not historical, but the time at which I came to the movie Mm. So 2001, and I think this is, no, 2000, this movie's 2000. So I think that's why this movie lands the way it does with me. And I think that's like valuable in a, in a very specific way. You're in middle school. You were. Yes. I'm trying, like this is eighth grade going on ninth grade. I'm not sure I saw it that early, but I know I saw it in high school and it meant the fucking world to me. Yeah. It just seemed to speak volumes like to my own experience about like what I was going through. Um, this movie came out September 13th, 2000, my birthday, is September 8th. So just five days after my 13th birthday. And this is like the perfect movie to watch for a teenager, I think. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, like one of, um, uh, I saw Roger Ebert's review for this yeah. and, um, he like one of his the last lines in the review was like it's rated R but it's a perfect movie for a teenager yeah which in is this time and place yeah you know? like it's uh, such a love letter to music fandom yeah you know that uh, it was odd that it was rated R you know um, but um, yeah it's uh, it was pretty big budget movie uh, yeah I was looking up like it went over schedule and over budget by like 15 million dollars yeah the music licensing budget was like almost four million dollars yes it has like to be for this leonard skinnard and uh famously uh, led zeppelin Cat stevens yeah and led zeppelin and yeah because like because led zeppelin know, doesn't give their music out like yeah. willy-nilly <laughs> right right yeah like I, I that came to mind like when when i was watching this i was like the fact that led zeppelin is is playing yeah i read this interview with cameron crow and he was just saying uh, he was talking, he was speaking on the fact like that Led Zeppelin adds so much texture to this movie. And I see that too. Like watching this time through, I didn't realize there were so many Led Zeppelin songs in this movie. I fucking love Led Zeppelin, but like when rain song drops and it's just like the third act of the movie, it's like so fucking perfect. Like yeah. the whole tone of the movie switches. It's a rain song. It's like kind of like depressed and dreary. It's like the hangover of the movie. Like the yeah. third act is like the hangover, you know? <laughs> And like I, I, I got that a lot with this time around. Um, I was reading like people's reactions because this movie had like a twenty year anniversary recently, two years ago. Mm. Wait, what? Yeah, two years ago, two thousand twenty. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. I was like, what year are we in? Um, Don't ask me to do math. Right so now. there was a lot. You know, people have been talking about this movie. I find in my my circle of cinephile friends, it's not like widely talked about, and I'm not sure why. I think it's like kind of an ickiness around Cameron Crowe because he kind of makes like wholesome movies. Mm. Or or what else did he make? Uh, Jerry Maguire, and that's oh yeah. So he has a few, but Jerry Maguire was his big one before this. That's why they gave him a bunch of money to make this movie. Mm. Um, Brad Pitt was attached to this. He was supposed to play, play Russell Hammond. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's Billy Crudup's part. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so when Brad Pitt kind of dropped off for whatever else he was doing, 
they didn't think this movie was going to happen because they just lost Brad Pitt. Like that's a huge loss. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was thinking about that. Like what kind of movie would have been if Brad Pitt had done it? I don't know. I think he would have been good because Brad Pitt's like fucking great. Like, especially for like, like relaxed stoner dude. But I think the, I mean, no, like uh, I think like maybe the narcissism is something that he might not have. Yeah. That's what I was just thinking that like, I, I can't picture uh, Brad Pitt pulling that off in the same way, you know, like that, that arrogance that like, yeah, he's pretending to be humble, you know, and, and it's like, him, yeah, like Russell's character, like he pretends to be humble and he comes off as like better than like that. He knows that he's better than everyone. Yeah. I, that's something that I feel like Brad Pitt can't pull off for like maybe a couple of reasons. I think maybe Brad Pitt is, he's a person that like plays with his looks and his roles. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Brad Pitt knows how good looking he is, but he kind of plays with that. Like he kind of plays with his, his position as an actor and his fame in his movies. Right, like right. he always, his character seemed like very self-aware. Like it seems very self-recognizing about the, like the person Brad Pitt is. Right. Um, and plus like if he wasn't playing like arrogant, like there's like a, also like a, like a naivety because like Billy Crudup or Russell Hammond is supposed to be like a 20 year old person in here. So like maybe he's not quite self-aware. Like, Brad Pitt would have like played that a little too well as like yeah. not aware of like how good looking he is. Like if he's not like super aware of his looks, then like, right, right. you know what I mean? Like he yeah, just would have done it a little too well, I think. Yeah. Cause it, like what really makes uh Russell a great character is that, that unlikability is palpable in a way, you know? Like, yeah. He is ta- like more talented than anyone in the band and knows yeah. it. Um, but for some reason or another, like that, there's like a subtle lack of humility there. Like he's not like overtly arrogant about it, but it's subtle that like he's aware that he's better than everybody else. And, uh, he kind of wants you to know it. Like you want, you know? Yeah. There's a lack of humility, but like a very real presence of humanity in these yeah. characters. But that goes for like every character in the movie. Like, you know, I think humanity runs throughout this movie. There's like a, all the characters like very fleshed out. Like you can tell that Cameron Crowe like cared a lot about like each character in this movie. I think, I think um, Kate Hudson won an Oscar for her performance, which is like well-deserved. Yeah. yeah. She like she's amazing. Grounds this movie so well. And I think that's one of the things that hits you as a teenager, like so fucking well, you know, um, I think I was reading an NPR interview about this and they were talking about, um, loving a thing that can't love you back. And like, that struck me as like so profound because that's like, that's like the whole thing about the movie. Right. right. And it, she, she knows it. Right. Because, yeah. um, she describes like her role as yeah. like the leader of the band-aids or whatever, you know, that she, and she explains to all the girls that like, if you just treat it like something if you don't take it seriously, you can't get hurt, you know, like, so yeah. she's very well aware of like, of this environment yeah. like, that like, what'd you say? Loving something that can't love you back. Yes. Um, and there's, there's scenes like two in particular where like Kate Hudson's performance is so amazing because of like everything that's communicated non-verbally. Yeah. Like, at, um, the scene where it's her birthday party mm-hmm. and she learns that like, she's not going with them to New York. Oh my God. And like, yeah. she doesn't express anything verbally. You see the hurt for like mm-hmm. three seconds and then she's mm-hmm. smiling again and cutting the cake. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, like that was like, 
like amazing. If she won an Oscar for this, it's very well deserved. Yeah, amazing. so well deserved. Her yeah. line delivery. I mean, and I think. The, and the other scene, uh, just real quick, is like when um, her and William have that like confrontation, like when they're away from the band, and yeah, he tells her that. Uh, Russell traded her for sold her to humble pie. Yeah, to humble pie. Fifty dollars in a case of beer. Maybe it is love, as much as it can be for somebody. Who sold you to humble pie for fifty bucks in a case of beer? I was there. I was there. Yeah, and she, um, uh, like, this is what's so great about her character. Like, she is like um, her and. Francis McDormand's character are my favorite characters in this movie, and we can get into her. Yes. But um, so that scene, so Kate Hudson's character, Penny Lane, she has this facade of like stone skin, you know, like nothing yeah. can penetrate her, and like nothing can uh, hurt her, you know. Um, and then so when William does that, which is like a really shitty, you know, like he only said that to hurt her, you know? Yeah. So I mean, like, sh as shitty as it is deserved in that moment, because yeah. they are pretty much stepping all over this kid. Right. Like, right. Throughout oh, yeah, the whole movie. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Penny too. Yeah. Right? And, um, so she cries, like you see tears and then boom again, like earlier with the birthday cake. Yeah. She smiles and she jokes. She says, what kind of beer, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it, it makes her like such a, interesting character that she's got this stone skin is, is the what i'm like picturing yeah she's like hardened and adapted and learned to navigate the landscape in this way you get the impression that like, like maybe this isn't the first time she's gone through something like this mm -hmm. and like it gives such depth and layering to that character the, like this person with the history history and she's like she's so young and like so beautiful you know and yeah. um i think the the thing that resonated resonated with me about that comment about things not being able to love you back is like they're talking about music mm. And like how music is the thing that permeates all this and the music is the thing that this movie gets right. And music is the thing that you can fucking love like to death and it will not love you back. And like, right. Like I had never noticed that that's like the big metaphor throughout this movie is like the love that will never be returned because music can just yeah. like can't love it you back. Can. Like it's just not going to happen. Yeah, It can make you feel all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. like Russell, will never find the appreciation he's looking for in the business. You know what I mean? I think ultimately he wants to be successful. Like that's his end goal, you know, like he's kind of Machiavellian in that way where he could, he'll just kind of do anything it takes to be successful at what he's doing right. to be like the best musician or like, um, and he like plays at humility. Like he plays, like he's sticking around for the rest of the band or whatever. Yeah. Like these are his it's friends. It's like a part, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, Oh, successful people need to be humble. Yeah. So I better, at least appear to be humble. Yeah, know? exactly. Oh, and that, like, the scene with the party, um, when he's like, I want to go and see real people. Real I, things. I only care about real things. Yeah. The way, like, he's going on about, like, I love this kitchen. It's so real. And they yeah. go into the bedroom and hang out with the kids and he's like you guys are real you know it's like it's so cringy it's like he's talking down to them you know it's like <laughs> it's like uh you aaron are what it's all about you're real your room is real your friends are real real man real you know real real you know you're 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 more important than all the silly machinery 
Yeah. So like I'm bigger to, than you. Right. Yeah. It's, but it's really nice to be here. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's super cringy. He's like a cringy character, mm -hmm. but like, that's like the humanity in him is that he's like, he's also young, you know, he can't be like, he's probably in his early twenties, like right. not too far off from William. Um, but he has a lot to shoulder, you know, uh, maybe not the most likable guy, but a relatable person. And I think that's what makes that part work so well as like, yes, um, he does horrible things, like not the, the, the best role model, but in a way like William Miller is lucky to have found Russell Hammond yeah. in a certain sense, you know, right, right. that awakening, um, that mentorship in a way like Russell kind of takes him under his wing and like welcomes him to this world warmly explains a lot of things to him. You know, he's very honest with him, like as shitty as Russell is throughout the movie, he's also very warm. And that's like the humanity of it, you know? Yeah. Like you, 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 and that's the thing about humanity, you know, like we're, we're not black and white. We're not one way or another. And that's exactly like what they get right about Russell in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think another thing they get right in this movie is this entering a new world. And I think this is why I said it like hit me at the right moment. Um, going from middle school to high school, I think that's like a very similar journey, you know, and like being the outsider, being uncool, being unloved and unrecognized. Yeah. And being the young kid, joining, uh, joining the fray uh, of all the big kids. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And the thing about that is that like, that's not always the easiest experience. It's rough. It's hard, you know, like it's like kind of scary. It's unknown. And this movie gets that, like that unknown knownness, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Right. You know, like William doesn't know what he's about to travel into like he doesn't expect to be this kid who's going to be away from his house like for very long you know he's just kind of thrown into the situation and it keeps on rolling and rolling and rolling away from him yeah um and it it, it it it's like so profound in the way that it talks about loving things and i think patrick fugit does william miller really well and this is like widely remarked upon that he was actually like falling for Kate Hudson as this movie was happening. Really? Yeah. But like, how yeah. can you not, how could you not, you know, yeah. like he's 16 years old. Like the actual actor, Patrick Fugit is 16 years old mm -hmm. during the filming of this, those scenes, like he's just like in awe of her. And you can tell like when they're right outside the venue, Yeah, you know, and they're talking about going to Morocco. Like, that's the kind of thing you would talk about, like at 16, you know, with your friends. Like I remember I would like my best friends who I would secretly have crushes on, and like, we would just never talk about it. We would just like say these flirty little things. It was like so magical. You know what I mean? I think like the, the big thing for me and like maybe other people said this, but like, there's like this thing in my best friend's wedding where like the two friends, like the two best friends say like, Hey, if we're not like married by 30, we'll just marry each other. Right. And that like, was like a thing that like kids told each other. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not the only person, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's something that I talked about with my best friend in like seventh, eighth grade. You know what I mean? I was like, Hey, like, because I had a secret, like this crush and I wouldn't want to talk about it. Yeah. I was like, well, Hey, if we're not married by like 25, like we'll just marry each other. Okay. It just kind of got you like this comfort and also like this like hint of flirtatiousness with this person that you adored, you know? Um, it gets that feeling just right of like entering this world and being too coy to say anything about it. Um, that dichotomy between William Miller and Russell Hammond, how William is just like sort of like scared and so new, you know, yeah, yeah. and, and, and 
Russell just seems so. He's at the top. Like he's, he's at, at the top. Yeah, of he's at the game, he's right? at the top. Yeah. He's confident. He's like an alpha. Yeah. He's like just like chewing up scenery wherever he goes. Yeah, like, I guess what they say. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that seems like that's causing the conflict in the band, right? Is that like he's not supposed to be the front man? Yeah, he's like stealing the limelight from the lead singer. Yeah, and uh, because of his natural charisma. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I can imagine how like why Cameron Crowe had seen Brad Pitt in that because of his natural charisma, but. Like, I think, like, you know, it's hard to deny Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah. um, so we, we didn't talk about um, Cameron Crowe, how, how this was. So he was a teenage music journalist. Like, yeah, uh, for Rolling like, Stone magazine. Yeah, like yeah. William. And um, he followed Led Zeppelin and the Allman Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can kind of um, see Stillwater as a stand-in for, like, a mis- mishmash of those two bands. Yes. Um, and... Uh, there's uh, some like pretty cool like trivia like um, Robert Plant like did that same thing that uh, Russell did at the party where he like gets up onto the roof and says I'm a golden I'm a golden god, god. yeah like yeah it's like a direct quote from Robert Plant at, yeah. at a party it's photographed too there's a photo there's a there's a picture that you can Google oh yeah yeah if you Google Robert Plant I'm a golden god you can find the picture of it's of him he's uh, he's standing on the balcony at the Riot House. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 And he's like holding his fist like Russell does. And the Riot House is the Hyatt Hotel, right? Exactly. And um, he's saying this because uh, he's standing over, what is it, like Sunset or Hollywood Boulevard or whatever? I think it's Sunset. Russell says it in the movie. I can't remember right now. Um, But he's standing over whatever street in Hollywood, and there's a giant physical graffiti billboard across the street. Mm -hmm. So he's looking at this like top of the world, you know, and he's like, I'm a golden god. (laughs) And uh, Billy Crudup had uh, noted that the reason Robert Plant had said that is because he had blonde hair. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I saw the same thing. Yeah. It was like, um, it still works. Like, he didn't see, like, he doesn't have blonde hair, but he, I'm a golden god. Like, I am, I am an idol, you know, like, yeah. being worshipped by Like a small people. golden statue or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So, it was like a little, just like a, a nod to just, I don't know, like, tribal worship or so you can see like William as a stand-in for young Cameron Crowe, but it, like I also had this thought that he might be Jay Baruchel as well, because uh, did you notice? So like this mm. movie has like a bunch of cameos, and we can get into it. But yeah. you, did you notice the young uh, Jay Baruchel? Yeah, the uh, of course the kid, uh, the Led Zeppelin fan. Yeah, so he's following around Led Zeppelin. Yeah, like Cameron Crowe followed around Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so I kind of see like maybe Jay Baruchel is more like maybe that might be a little Easter egg that it's like he's. Um, a little bit more Jay Baruchel because he's the one following around Led Zeppelin. And that yeah. character is much more um, just like a Homer, you know, like he's just a like Homer, ge- a Homer, like geeking out for the band. You know, like not a Is that what you call that? Yeah. A Homer. Homer. Yeah. I've never heard. Like I'm a Homer for the Dodgers. You know? <laughs> I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard that before. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was my thought when I saw that uh, Cameron Crowe covered Led Zeppelin uh, yeah. as a teenager. And he, he wrote for the Rolling for Rolling Stone. For Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah. He said it was a lot like this, the the characters characterization of uh, like the people at Rolling Stone. He's like it was yeah. exactly like that. Like the editors they uh, in an interview they asked him like, Oh, was it really like they were they really that tough on you? He's like, Oh, they were even like worse. Really? Yeah. 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 But I mean I guess as an editor or a, 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 a fact checker, like that's gotta be pretty fucking frustrating. I don't know. Never been in the business, but I'm sure like 
she seems to be like the villain in this movie, but like, I'm sure like she was rightfully, yeah, <laughs> rightfully upset. Right, right. Yeah, it's like, uh, it, like I'm sure that environment is so chaotic that there has to be like that counterbalance in the room just to be like the bad cop and just like shut everything down. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. This is not only like a love letter to music fandom, but I, it seemed to me, especially after Fear and Loathing, um, that this is kind of like a love letter to new journalism. Yeah. Um, this takes place in 73, same, I think same year as uh, um, Fear and Loathing Fear and in Las Loathing. Vegas. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of um, references to Hunter S. Thompson in this. Yeah, um, directly. They mention yeah. him by name. They mention him by name. Yeah. And then uh, there's also a poster in one of the uh, scenes uh-huh. uh, for Freak Power, um, the uh, p- uh, political mm. party that he founded. I didn't notice that. Yeah, so the, the symbol for that is a red fist with uh, two thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that's Freak Power when, when Hunter S. Thompson ran for uh, um, correction I think it, I said in the last show that it was mayor of Colorado or whatever. It mm-hmm. was like sheriff of a county in Colorado. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it seemed to me that, like, this this movie is also, like, an homage to new journalism. That um, And you can kind of picture William as, like, a young Hunter S. Tom- Thompson gonzo journalist because he's getting fully immersed in and making himself a part of the story yeah in a way you know that unintentionally like, in a way unintentionally yeah because like you know he is going in there and acting professional like yeah. he, he uh, starts the tape recorder um to get like the transcript from from these for these interviews and mm-hmm. all of that material is garbage right because they're all giving him like the the cultivated phony answers yeah you know? well not necessarily garbage because you get like the the egocentricity of yeah. rock stars. Yeah, like that in juxtaposition to the realness, the real stuff that happens off of the tape. Yeah. I think paints the fuller picture. Yeah. That you've got these this band that is like really trying to hone an image. Um but there's all of this like drama going on underneath. Mm-hmm. There's like all of these personalities and, and yeah. more authentic human things happening. Yeah. That's like another thing that the movie's addressing is like this introduction to like music and commerce, like yeah, the 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 forming of personalities and media and stuff like that, you know, yeah, yeah. like the well, that's like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, right? Yeah, because, exactly. Um, so uh, William sees Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, this older writer, as uh, you know, he like looks up to him as admires him as a writer. He talks to him and. Um, you know, he's like, oh, so you want to be a rock and roll writer? It's it's a yeah. shame you missed it. You know, because, <laughs> like, it's, he, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's a bit jaded about it. He feels like he's yeah. become commercialized, and um, and you can see that with the band with Stillwater that that's what they're trying to do. Like, you know, some money would be nice. So mm-hmm. It seems like that they're 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 cultivating their image mm-hmm. after these other bands that have made it big, um, and uh, but you know, I'm a little bit conflicted about that interpretation too because. That's just how things are done, you know, like mm-hmm. you emulate your influences, you know, yeah. and if you, and if you really, um, as, as a band were influenced by a successful band, then why wouldn't you emulate them? Yeah. Which is another interesting aspect of this because this isn't like a, like a great band. Mm-hmm. I think that's like really, yeah. really cool about Stillwater. It's like, it's not like a great band. 
like they even say like they're like a middling band. Yeah, like, yeah. I think it's like mentioned to like they, they even. Right. It, that's so, the pitch that Philip Seymour Hoffman tells. Yeah. William oh, mid level. Yeah, a middle yeah. level band in the face on the of stardom. Cusp of stardom. Uh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Which is one of the great lines in this movie. It's a think piece about a mid level band struggling with their own limitations in the harsh face of stardom. That's great. I like what we're saying. They're not like breaking any boundaries or anything. They're just like barely getting by. But I think that places this movie like in a very uh, like grounded grounded place where it's more relatable and it's not about a band who's like blowing up or something. It's not like a biopic. It's not necessarily a music movie either. Yeah. Like I don't consider it a music movie. It's a movie about the love of music in a way. Right. Or just right. love. And more ju- about the fandom than the, yeah, the music itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, that will be, ultimately more relatable than any biopic or like documentary would be is just like generally the love of music, what it feels like to like fall in love. And I, and I think that's the two things that it's conflating in a certain sense, like love of music and just like love in general, because music is there for all those moments. You know what I mean? Like you have so many specific memories like connected to music, yeah, which is like, another thing this movie gets right like uh, out of all the countless things like the fact that there's music constantly and for like every moment there's a song attached to it and so it's just like ingraining itself in your fucking brain like these scenes yeah you know and you know i I already brought up the rain song but that's like ingrained in my brain with this or like when tangerine plays fucking tiny dancer yeah like every uh, time i hear tiny dancer i'm gonna think of that scene in the bus yeah, that Cat Stevens song when uh, Kate Hudson is in the auditorium by herself. Oh my like, God! Yeah, dancing yeah. alone. Right. Uh, what What is that song? Shoot, the wind. I listen to the wind. Yeah, the wind in my soul. But that's yeah. how like yeah, it, that's like how life works. Like if yeah. you love music, you're gonna attach meaning to these songs, and they're just gonna have like these images in your head. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like that's so true to life and true to like the the mental concept of like loving music and memory and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like it it gets that so close to what it's like to remember. Um, That's, that's, that's like the big thing about this movie. It it, it feels like memory. Yeah. 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 Especially, you know, it taking place in this, in the seventies and, um, and I can't help but draw comparisons. Like I, I'm going to be doing this. Um, hopefully this is the last time, but I, I keep, I can't help but draw comparisons to fear and loathing that it's, yeah. you know, the, the, the de- decline or commercialization of rock music. Um, here we are in 1973, mm-hmm. um, is again, aftermath of the sixties, I think, you know, yeah. that, like, um, this really, interesting and unique thing happened in the Mm sixties and uh, it became co-opted and commercialized in the Mm seventies. And uh, I I can't help but see parallels in there. And maybe that's just, um, maybe that's just the fact that we've watched these two things so close. No, it's the fact that it happened in the same place. And we're talking about like the same field, like journalism. There's, you can't, you can't really like, separate those two things right. you know what i mean like if if you know william miller is a real person then hunter s thompson's on his radar yeah absolutely yeah yeah i um so i just happened across a uh i think i mentioned in the fear and loathing episode that i wanted to read fear and loathing on the campaign trail uh-huh just happened serendipitously across a copy on our on our friend's bookshelf and 
Um, so I've been reading that and yeah. like I wanted to, which just, friend, uh, Kim, Kim Tran. Nice. And, uh, so, um, yeah, I wanted to read something here cause it, it's, I think it's like an ode to, to new journalism and perfect. The fact that it like, I don't know, it, it makes a whole lot of sense with William's character and it just like aligns yeah. perfectly. So this is from fear and loathing on the campaign trail. It's in the introduction Hunter S. Thompson um, is describing following, um, you know, the, the McGovern campaign in 1972. Mm-hmm. Uh, quote, I went there for two reasons. One, to learn as much as possible about the mechanics and the realities of a presidential campaign. And two, to write about it the same way I'd write about anything else, as close to the bone as I could get and to hell with the consequences. <laughs> so like that, like that last sentence yeah. is, it, you know, it encapsulates the experience of William in this movie yeah. as close to the bone as he could get and yeah. to hell with the consequences. Cause he's got all of these responsibilities that he's eschewing yeah. by following the band to get the story. Um, he's missing tests. He's missing his graduation and, and all that stuff, but it's um, for the full, immersion uh journalistic um like endeavor i was thinking about viewing that for the first time and the ways in which the movie has aged for me over time what the characters mean to me in a certain sense um like i i don't think like necessarily russell was like a villain in my head before Mm -hmm. like at first watch but you've mentioned this already francis mcnorman yeah. His mom has just like aged so fucking beautiful, beautifully for me. Yeah. Like I, she was, she is the most interesting character. She is. In this. Yeah. And her presence just like resonates throughout the whole movie mm-hmm. and it makes this movie work. It, it frees this movie from cynicism in a way. Yeah. Um, from like this nasty shadowiness, this grunginess that like maybe this world might have. But the fact that Frances McDormand, I, I can't remember her name. Oh, uh, the mom's. I do we even learn her name? I, it's I, always. I think mom we do. Is it? I don't know. I, I think we learn her name. Um, but the fact that she has taken such care. Yeah. Um, the fact that she has like raised this kid in like like in her like her ideal way. Right. Has like instilled such values in him. You you know that like this kid is gonna make the right choices. Yeah, like he's not in any real danger of like ruining his life or anything like that. Right. And yet it's like so painful for her to let him go have the adventure. I mean, right? yes, but she's also very open to the experience. Like she understands the value of it. Like she doesn't necessarily like it. Yeah, but when he comes back home, I mean, really, she's fine with it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's like she, like what she intended for him to experience uh, had happened, you know, and he, yeah. um, he didn't get hurt or he didn't uh, die, you know. Exactly. And yeah. she's like so down for that experience. Like right. uh, she's like on board. Like she's just so happy to see her daughter, like Anita, when they come back, like when he finally comes back to the house, it's with the sister. Yeah. Who, who's been like estranged, I guess, from the mother. Yeah. Really great moment. Um, but yeah, just like a fucking... A one mother in this movie, and and I, I love that like this it, it imbues the whole movie with like this this wholesomeness like sort of like this confidence yeah like, and, like, she, like, like undoubtedly like loving mother you know and yeah. like um but she's like 
I don't know. I think of, of what really plays into the the depth of her character is that she's a single mother. Yeah. And um, so she's like trying to do it all, you know, like yeah. she's, she's like overbearing and strict. Uh-huh. Um, but w- like, so on, on, for, on the surface, if it's like, she's like too overbearing or yeah. like too tyrannical or something. Um, and, and maybe she is like in the case of the daughter. Cause like, she, like it kind of drives the daughter away. Yeah. But, um, like if, when I like really looked at the character, the way she imbued values into the, the, like into the kids, like she was like kind of like demanding, like she doesn't represent like an, an oppressive like culture or society, like, because like she is as much a rebel as anybody else because yeah. like she like bans like sugar and <laughs> butter in, in her house. Cause like, yeah. like she's aware that like, um, like the food industry is like poisoning us with all of these <laughs> like, like, uh, sweeteners and fats and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, she, they sep- they celebrate Christmas in September to avoid the commercial of it. Um, uh, she has a line like adolescence is just a marketing ploy. So it's like, she is kind of like a rebel against society. Yeah. Most and definitely. She, she like demands better, you know, like, she, mm-hmm. and so she really like instills that in the children. Mm-hmm. And, um, like I, what I really love is like when she gets Russell on the phone <laughs> and she like freaking dresses him down, yeah. scares the crap out of him. But then she says something kind of sweet. She's like, uh, um, I got the quote here. I, I wrote it down. Um, so after like totally like ripping him a new one, mm-hmm. she says, okay, go do your best. Um, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. Be bold. The mighty forces will come to your aid. Yeah. So yeah. she's like this like strict and encouraging figure yeah. that um, is like really, really rich. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah. like, and Frances McDormand is an amazing actress. She is one of the best. Yeah. And uh, so you can just see like the conflict in that character. Where yeah. She's like, she knows that William's going to grow from this experience, uh-huh. but it's, like really scary for yeah. her to like let him go. I also yeah. love the confidence of Russell, how he thinks he's going to charm this woman right before he gets on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's just like, woo, like come yeah. and join the circus. Yeah. <laughs> like this how does it feel to be the mother of the best rock journalist? <laughs> he's just not buying into any of his bullshit, mm-hmm. which is like the, the, the thin veil that he wears throughout this, this movie, you know, yeah. I think the, the superficiality of this world is also something is a theme that runs through like when um, William talks to Penny about like the real world, like when they finally sit down and have that talk, mm. like what is the real world? Do you know what I mean? Right. There is no Morocco. Yeah, exactly. And he, he, he understands like this superficiality and it's just so offensive to him because I mean, he's feeling all these things so deeply. Yeah. Um, And I think, I, I, I think that like everyone else in this movie, I, I think what everyone else in this movie, but William loves, is music. So that's the thing they're feeling deeply. So it doesn't feel fake to them. It doesn't feel forced or superficial or anything yeah. because they, they, they have this like this, this thing running through them where like they are feeling actual love. It's just misplaced in like right. every sense, you know, yeah. like, like Russell can't figure out really like what he wants or who he is. Like he's married, but he's messing with Penny. Yeah. And that's really just, I don't know. He, he he, yeah, and meanwhile Jeff is messing with uh, Leslie. Or exactly, is that, is that and like Penny's wife. Yeah, yeah, and like Russell. Penny thinks she's in love with Russell. Right. 
but that's just like such a, a superficial like in of this moment in this world kind of thing you know yeah like what she's talking about like her like in the in the real world you know what I mean? in the real world she doesn't really love russell that's the sense that i right, get you right. know what i mean no and i mean that's a really great observation and you can like add a layer to that too with william's love for penny you know like which yeah. i think is misplaced too because and i think the movie is telling you that at the end when um uh she's like vomiting like she's getting her stomach pumped from the quaaludes yeah and he's watching her and like mia moore oh, comes on that's you like know? so painful it's like yeah it's painful and it's kind of like i don't know it's just kind of like a twisted scene to me because uh, yeah yeah he's like he like well one because he kisses her when yeah, she's he, passed out exactly, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah. like it's not gonna work today uh but also just yes yeah, so when like they go into the the song and like her feet are like curling up and stuff like that yeah and it, there's a romantic song playing over you know and you, yeah it go, it's a close-up of, of him and he, he's like you know, got stars in his eyes and all that. Yeah, he's, like, completely disillusioned. Yeah. Um, but the thing about that is, like, he's still got the valuable experience of, like, what it means to fall in love, how to protect yourself. Like, he's, like, gaining all this valuable knowledge, you know what I mean? Um, and, and I think that's also a part of it is, like, he's taking, like, very real lessons from a superficial world because he's, like, so uninitiated and, and so young and, like, I mean, yeah, that's that's the realness of the situation, you know. Is that yeah? Like, it seems to me he's, like he's he so grounded, and he, and he's come from this place. He's come from this household with his great mother. You know what I mean? Like he can only the only thing he knows is how to pick up on the real. You know? Yeah, yeah, and it it seems to me like yeah, he like lived ten years in that like one month he was on the road, which with is or whatever, yeah, <laughs> so fucking great. Like yeah. when he lands on like when he throws himself on his bed, I'm, yeah. I'm just like that is so so relieving. This, this like isolation is like something that I get like this, this like being young can be like very isolating. I remember like feeling so left out of like so many things because I was young and, and he's like adjacent to all these things that he wants, like just out of his grasp. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. he wants to be a writer and he's sort of like working on it, but he's like just adjacent to it. Right. Like the same way that like, like Russell is adjacent to like fame, like almost famous, you know yeah, what I mean? Like yeah. great title. Um, and like his little, his, his big sister's telling him you're going to be cool. You, you know, you're not cool right one now. Day one day you'll be, cool. be cool. Yeah. And he, he doesn't really, he doesn't ever get to that in the movie, but the fact that, you know, like these are the experiences that will make you cool yeah. one day, you know <laughs> what I mean? But like, we all know that experience of like not being cool of like, maybe it was like different in your head. Like, so the most relatable thing I have to this movie story time so when i was i'm gonna say like 12 13 i had a cousin and he had a girlfriend my cousin died so he was young he was probably like 1920 so he was killed and it caused a bunch of turmoil for the family so his mom and his girlfriend ended up moving in with my family and I, w I was like 12 or 13 and she was like 19 years old and I thought she was gorgeous mm -hmm. and I was just like completely smitten by this person and and like we had this relationship where we got along so well we would have conversations full-on conversations she would come and she would pick me up after work and we would just go for drives and like and I remember this moment where we were listening to the Smiths like we're listening to the girlfriend in a coma and I just like remember not understanding what was happening and she was like singing along just like 
I mean, like, you don't get it yet, yeah. but, like, it's coming. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. But does, the, does that song, is that coupled with that memory? Like, does Oh, yeah, does for sure. Every, yeah, yeah. Like, Girlfriend yeah. in a Coma takes me back to that moment. And that's yeah. what's, like, happened in this movie over and over again. But this fact that, like, people are reaching out to you, people from, like, another world, another place, people who are older than you, people who, like, are kind of famous, you know, people who you admire. He has posters on the wall. Like, that experience of, like, that world reaching out to you, like, right. something that is unknown, something that, like, you're just so close to, that's, like, the whole vibe of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, um, do you think that coolness is, like, ephemeral? Because, like, when he comes home, yeah. the, um, the sister's boyfriend, like, climbs into the window, and he's like, oh, William, you seem cooler. And this guy, who seemed so cool in the memory, you know, he's, like, driving the car and yeah. like peeling out. And that's that's a, that's a director's cut scene. Oh, it is? Yeah, because I did not oh, okay. see that in this one. Yeah. So I've he, seen that scene, but it's not in, it's not in it's this not cut. In, it's not in the theatrical it's on, cut. Yeah, so what happens? Uh, so he, like, climbs in the window while um, William's, like, typing up his story. Yeah. And, uh, like... Yeah, he just climbs in and it's like a really awkward exchange. Like he's longing, he's longing for the memory of his big sister. He's like, oh, what me and your sister used to do in these walls. <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, oh, William, you seem cooler. Yeah. Um, and he, this guy very much does not seem cool. You know, he feels, yeah. he seems like a loser, like pining for the past. Yeah. And, um. And it just makes me think that, you know, to your point that that maybe that coolness is, uh, is flash in the pan, you know, like that it's like, um, if you have it, like you might not have it for long. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. So let's go into our favorite scenes. There's a lot. Right. Yeah, there are. But before we get to that, I am going to make a bold statement. Maybe it's not so bold. I don't know well, how you feel. You but know I what, think uh, William's mom says is that uh, if you're bold, then the mighty forces will come to your aid. Forces will come to your aid. So let's see if that's true. This is the most rewatchable movie of all time. Mm. <laughs> um, I, it's a compelling art. Uh, yeah, I. I think I you need to see not the director's cut. You just yeah. need to see the regular <laughs> cut. It breezes by. It's such a good feeling. Like this is my comfort movie. People have like many comfort movies. I think this is the only thing that comes to mind when people say like a comfort movie, like something yeah. that makes you comfortable and warm. This is the perfect movie to watch if you have a hangover. <laughs> you know what my comfort movie is? What? The first 30 minutes of Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a full movie. No, just hang out in the Shire. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that's really nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a good vibe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, I could so, do that for years. Uh, scenes. What are your What are your favorite scenes? Okay, scenes that make the film. So, when Anita leaves home, and she says, "I want to," when she puts on the record, and yeah. she's like, "This is the reason I'm leaving home." Yeah. This song explains why I'm leaving home to become a stewardess. We can't talk. We have to listen to rock music. I love you. That up until William finds the records, it's just like awesome. Yeah. You know, like play, play the who's Tommy in right. with the candle and burning. You'll see, see your future. You'll, you'll see your whole future. Yeah. That moment for me is 
like that's happened to me. Like, n- like not that obviously, right. but that moment where like you, he, you've just stumbled onto something that's going to change your life. Like to find that stack of records and like to go through, to see that album art for the first time, like album art is like such a big thing for me. Like I remember yeah. like flipping through my friends, like CD cases, seeing album art and like, I remember like the first few pages of all our CD cases was like always like the same CDs and the same yeah. album art because we all had the same shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Isn't that amazing that like, uh, it's so important to the, the, the piece, yeah. the album art that, uh, um, and it's like, it's not the band that like puts that on there. Right. It's like, I mean, so. it's partly that, I mean, yeah. they have like a designer, obviously like, it's yeah. a lot of creativity, but like, but yeah. there's like so many hands. And yeah. Thing, yeah. But, but I think and, the band has a lot of say, like I'm yeah. sure some bands have like a really clear vision of what they want the album to look like. Yeah. But, but yeah, that album art is like such a huge part of the experience. Yeah. But like, I've had that experience with some of those albums in that stack. You know what I mean? Like Joni Mitchell's blue, like Stevie and I, my younger sister, Stevie, like have had significant moments with that album. And the fact that river plays the river, like I think it's river or the river. I don't remember, but the fact that it plays when like he's talking to Penny about how old he is, which is what another one of my favorite scenes. Like when they're talking about like how old are you really, you know? How old are you? Eighteen. Me too. How old are we really? Seventeen. Me too. Actually, I'm sixteen. <sighs> Me too excellent scene and like why like a testament to like kate hudson's powers she's just like so charming like she just i I don't know what it reminds me it reminds me of a book um i want to say catch on the ride but no it's not that but like the way this movie ages is very like catch on the ride-esque to me because Mm. it changes every time i watch it yeah like this movie is aging with me like in so many significant ways yeah like um i i wanted to bring up the the t-shirt scene like i i love that scene where it's like the t-shirt as like the catalyst for all of the issues in the band. Yeah. And, um, another like add on to that is that, um, Penny Lane like foreshadows that like not a, I don't, I don't know how much before that, but they're on the bus uh, yeah. traveling and, and she's kind of like leaning over to William and telling him about like, Oh, there he's, are he's my project. The, yeah. But, yeah. and she, she says like that there are issues in the band, you know, like, so she like is attuned to like, all of these uh, interdynamics. Yeah. And when the t-shirt comes up and Russell is in the foreground and Jeff is in the background, yeah. Blows it up. Yeah. You know, that was, that was a really cool scene. And like to go back to like Francis McDormand's character, Mm -hmm. like Francis McDormand's character, I feel like really supplements Penny Lane. Yeah. Because like Penny Lane is also like a, a maternal figure, like to all of the other band-aids, like she's, the one kind of like looking out for all of them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, and I don't know if I'm being like an armchair psychologist right now, but, um, fuck it. Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> I feel like maybe that's why like William is kind of like falling out in love with Penny Lane. Right. Because like she's kind of like a surrogate mother to William too. Like mm-hmm. she like, leaves when he's about to be deflowered by the other girls. And, uh, she, she kind of like looks after him as like a a big sister or a mother might, you know, another one of my favorite scenes, speaking of like maternal characters, but like paternal characters, Lester bangs, the conversation when he's telling William that he's not cool. Uh, yeah, I fucking love that scene. Uh, 
he says something about like the only currency we share in this bankrupt world is like what we share with someone when we're uncool. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Like that resonates with me. Like so well, you know, yeah. like having that person who's like investing on rope, mic or off mic. What do you mean? I, like when, uh, William has his recorder going with Lester bangs. Yeah. This is on the phone when he's like, Oh shoot. Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like Lester is like flipping through records in his apartment. William is just like doesn't know what to tell Ben Functor is. Mm -hmm. I think this is what it is. This is this might be a little later because anyway, he tells him like the only true currency we have is what we share with someone when we're not cool. Yeah. Um which I think is like so vital to the experience of like growing up. But to have that like that person, you know, like that's just like another thing like I think it's like mentors is the thing about this movie or not even mentors, but like inspirations or like people that you think are cool. And they're not like always the best characters, but like certainly they're influential in your life. Right. Right. I've had so many, so much of that in my life. Like people who I look back on now, I'm just like, uh, but like, we're so fucking influential. And in like the person I am today, Lester Bangs is that character. Like yeah, Phyllis Seberhoffen, yeah. who plays him excellently. Like I fucking love this character in this movie. He's just like, he himself, you can tell he's like, pent up with all these insecurities and stuff like that, but also jaded and like experienced. Yeah. And wise, you know, like yeah. he is like imparting like really, really useful stuff for. Yeah. But he's also William. cynical and in a yeah. way that's like not useful. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like what he tells him is like, he's always kind of like not make, trying to make him feel better. Right. Like it, it's like reality, but it's also not encouraging, but also it's true. <laughs> well, like the, the observation he made about like looking retrospectively at people that you admired in the past yeah. um, is interesting, uh, particularly with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, because like there's a moment where um, William's like really like geeking out with him and, mm -hmm. um, and Lester's like playing it cool. It's like, oh yeah, keep sending me your stuff, and you know, yeah. I just can't, I just can't keep hanging out with you and like be talking to my many fans, you know. Yeah. And then they have this awkward moment where, like, Lester's just waiting for the bus or whatever. It's kind of like a humbling moment. See, just, that's like, also yeah. only in the director's cut. Oh, that's the director's cut too. Oh, so man, that, the director's cut is pretty good. Yeah, no, it is good. I think it makes the movie actually a little better. Yeah. So what happens is like, there's not that gap. He's just like, I can't stand around talking to my many fans, and it's almost like an immediate cut. cut. Yeah. To them talking in the in yeah, the, there's a solid ten second yeah. awkwardness yeah, where I remember Lester's that. just waiting for the bus. Yeah, and yeah. So it makes more sense, like what just happened, because like in in, in because the, it goes to the diner. Right? Yeah, it, yeah, but yeah, but in the original cut, like it just kind of jumps and like honestly, I was a little confused about that. I was like, yeah. oh, so like is this like another day or something? Like right. it's not quite clear. But when you get that like silence in the director's cut about like you know like where they're just standing around when and you know he has no one else to talk to, yeah, it makes more sense that they like immediately went to go talk in a restaurant. You know right. what I mean? No, I love that because like that that separation is like. I don't know what seems to like bring him back down, like yeah. hum humble him to the point where like he can hang out with this teenager at a diner for a little while. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. And like, also that like he's full of shit and like not many people know who he is. Cause he's yeah. like so niche. He writes yeah. for the like, cream magazine, you know what right. I mean? Like, but, like be legitimately a good writer, you know? And like, yeah, for William sure. Recognizes it. And, um, and there can actually be like a, a legitimate, like mentor mentee relationship. Yeah. There, you know, <laughs> I want to say the tiny dancer scene, but in a way, it's a little played out. Yeah. It's a little corny. They're all singing on the bus. It works <laughs> for me. It works for me every time. Like, it's a beautiful scene. Yeah. A little played out and corny. Um, a bit. You know, I, I 
still like it because of that hangover of, um, because basically Russell like tried to quit the band. Right. And like, yeah, went crazy at a house party, took acid, took acid. And somehow the manager wrangled him and got him back onto the tour bus. And everybody is still like that argument is unresolved. Right. Like Russell left the band. Yeah. They get back on the, on the bus and, um, tiny dancer somehow brings them all together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I like when they go to the right house and Anna Paquin is explaining to William Mm. the drama that's about to play out. Yeah. Which I know is also different in the director's cut. Don't remember what happens, but I know there's added things to that, but she's like explaining in acts. Yeah. What's about to happen between Penny Lane and William Miller or uh, Russell. Uh, Russell. Russell, In act three, it all happens just the way she planned. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. The glances they exchange, I think is like so good. Like the fact that she just like, I don't know everything that's happening on her face. She acts as the shit of this movie. Like she just like shows little teeth, bites her lip and she's like looking directly at him. Yeah. It's like, she's got it. Yeah. Yeah, Kate Hudson. I was like so amazed by, by her in this. Yeah. She's awesome. Yeah. This was like her breakthrough performance. Like Mm -hmm. rightfully so. Um, we're talking about the cameos that happen in this movie. Mark Maron's in this movie too. Oh yeah. <laughs> the gate. He uses, if you've ever listened to his podcast, uh, yeah, he uses it at the intro. Yeah. It's like part of the intro. That little... It took me so long to realize that. Yeah. He looks different. He like, he's like a little heavier or something in the, yeah, I'm sure he is. Yeah. Um, what are some of the other cameos in this movie? Mitch Hedberg. Did you see? Oh Mitch yeah. Hedberg? During yeah. the poker game. Yeah. There's yeah. so many moments in this movie where we were just like, Oh my God. It's that guy. <laughs> uh, Peter Frampton is in it. Uh, Who's he? I can't remember, but I saw him on the cast list, so I wrote him down. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I wish I knew who he was. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go back and uh, and look. Uh, Kyle Gass, um, he was a radio host. Oh, really? Uh, that might be in the director's cut. There's a guy, they're interviewing the band. Um, that's in the director's cut. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, at the radio station and he falls asleep or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's in the director's cut only. Yeah, that's Kyle Gass, one half of Tenacious D. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do yeah, remember that guitarist. now. I've seen the director's cut. I had it on Blu-ray. Um, I only watched it once, though, because it is fucking long. It is long. Um, who else? Uh, Jimmy Fallon. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is like before he was super famous. Yeah, it's kind of hard to recognize under that bowl cut and the beard. (laughs) Yeah. The airplane scene is also another notable scene. Oh, yeah. We got to talk about the airplane scene. I can't believe we haven't. Like, that's that's the climax, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah, and, like, that's, like, all of the realest shit that gets into the article, right? You know? Yeah. Um, What I loved about the, the airplane scene was, like, the finally the punchline of the drummer that doesn't talk. He's like, I'm gay. <laughs> really, his only big line in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's he's not. The, no, no, no. He's not the barbecue guy. It's like I just want some barbecue. Who's that guy? Dude, I, I don't think he. I don't think the drummer talks at all until. Yeah, until just that. until that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think the the barbecue Who's guy's the, barbecue the bassist. Guy? The bassist. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I just want some barbecue. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, the bassist but is. That's like, something I say. Like I I used to say it a lot. Like if yeah. like we just. Had nothing to do. I said, like, "Man, I just want some barbecue." <laughs> it's yeah, a good line to insert uh, at any what point. Do you, what do you add to the band? <laughs> I play bass. <laughs> yeah, but what if if we took out the bass? Like, what would be missing? <laughs> bass. 
Um, we wanted to talk to people about this movie. Mm. And like, unfortunately, we couldn't get that done. So the two people have in mind, this is probably not the last we've heard of this movie because I really, really want to talk to these people about this movie. It's like two of my old friends I've known for like 25 years. And this movie was like significant to all of us at the same time. Like there was some like really like interesting shit happening in our relationship with these two people mm. that was like, I don't know, interconnected in our own like melodramatic yeah. way with this movie. I was like really excited to talk to them. I wanted to do a part one and part two, but like they're super busy right now. So they're unavailable, but they're both like into music. So which would be interesting. So expect to hear more about this. All right. We can do a redux. Yeah, most certainly. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? No, I think that about wraps are all up. I think so. Expecting to hear more about this. I don't know if we're going to stick to our usual schedule of Fridays because this has kind of been all over the place, but we, you know, look out for us. We're going to try to do it weekly. I'm not sure if that's going to work out, but we'll put them out when we got them. I don't know when this is going to come out. I'm going to put this out as soon as it's done edited. Like I'm just going to put it out. (laughs) Throw it out there. Um, Well, you want to pitch the, um, uh, Criterion Cult Pod. We we were guests on another podcast. Yes, not too long we ago. just guested on the Criterion Cult podcast. I think that's coming out next week. We talked about Brazil and the Matrix. Really great conversation. Super fun. It's super fun. Oh, we we said a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe the mic was hot for a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully they do a good job editing. <laughs> Uh, but yeah a good time please check that out I mean we had plans about next week we're going to do a Kevin Smith retrospective probably with the Criterion Cult guys look out for that we have some stickers if you're listening and you want one hit us up I'll get you one any way that I can there are uh, the commemorative of our Kiki's Delivery service episode yeah drawn by Patricia Kelly and yeah. uh, done in Miyazaki style. She does commissions. Um, it's on the Instagram, so check out if you want uh, to get a commission done. Check out the Instagram. There's a there's a link to her uh, to her page. So. Yeah, yeah. I tagged it on there. You should be able to find her that way. It's a really great sticker. Like I said, if you're local and you want one, I will try to find a way to get it to you. Um, thanks for hanging out, guys. Thanks for listening. We're glad to do this, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So that was our conversation about Almost Famous. I hope you enjoyed that. I had a little buzz going when that was happening. Maybe you can tell. I was slurring a little. Sorry about that, guys. It was that green tea, stone beer. Good stuff. If you want to follow us, you can follow us on Instagram at Filmslobbery. That's F-I-L-M-S-L-O-B-B-E-R-Y. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts. Uh, subscribe. Leave us reviews. That's what he's Reviews and comments. Tell us what to do. Share your thoughts. Let us know what episodes you want to hear because we're kind of open to that. We have a running list, but we're open to new ideas. Music you're listening to now is recorded by Randy Flores, written by Randy Flores, all that good stuff. Um, next week, we'll get, we had that guest spot. Mentioned it three times. Listen to it. It's good stuff. Thanks for listening, guys. Appreciate you. We love you. We'll see you next week.